Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This has been the craziest transfer window ever. When we recorded this edition of the podcast around 9.30 on Friday morning, it seemed certain that Cristiano Ronaldo would join Manchester City. Now, in a classic hijack, it looks as if he's returning to Manchester United. It's the modern game in microcosm. Who'd be a football writer? Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Art de Rocher of The Athletic. I wasn't being entirely serious the other day when I said on here that my fantasy transfer would involve Cristiano Ronaldo returning to the Premier League, as long as he joined a club where he'd be a folk hero. Leeds, Newcastle, you get the drift. Now it looks like he's joining Manchester City. He's one of the greatest, most intensely driven players in history. But he's 36. What will his impact be, do you think, Miguel? I'm actually a little sceptical about how outright a success will be. I mean, on, obviously on a very superficial level, it makes sense in that City need a goal scorer. He wants to leave. He wants to go back to the Premier League to a Champions League club because he wants to, to win the Ballon d'Or. And the Champions League itself. First of all, I think it should be said, it's something we discussed in the show before. I think it's a bit of a shame, and again, another reflection of modern football, that because Ronaldo wants to do this, he's left with such a limited scope of clubs. And I actually, I mean, we shouldn't be too sentimental about football, but I do think, say, even, even, even five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, 15, I think he would have had enough choices. Even and it's amazing to think Milan aren't even aren't even a choice like this anymore. Milan like a massive club, but he would have had enough choices that he could kind of bring in the emotional considerations of United. Whereas now, because the football world at the top is getting so small, he's left with a limited ban, and City is the most logical choice. But for all it seems superficially logical, it was yeah, it was the exact same event in twenty eighteen. The events are are basically they've been to the final twice in the Champions League. They were so close to glory. Let's sign the Champions League's greatest ever goal scorer, and that'll surely take them through. Didn't work out like that. And what happened at Juventus was, and particularly in the last year, and I think this is what makes it actually quite fascinating and not necessarily that much of a guarantee of success. Juventus have basically been trying to introduce a Pep Guardiola approach for three years, and they haven't been able to do that because of Ronaldo, because he's just not suited to it. So it's remarkable that the originator of all that football is bringing him in. Now, City, of course, do need a number nine. but and, and it should be said, I mean, Ronaldo, no matter what happens, he'll probably get about 30 goals. He'll get hat-tricks against Watford, all the rest of it. But that's not, like, that's not the issue with City. The issue with City is obviously the fine details that brings the European Cup. And maybe this season, the fine details because they're up against what looks like a very strong Chelsea and a resurgent Liverpool. And yet... In that, you've got a manager in Guardiola who, particularly in these massive European games, as we saw from the Champions League final, obsesses over the kind of the minutiae of the, the, like the, the, the minor metres of where players run. And now at the tip of that, he has a striker who not just won't, who probably won't press for him in the way he wants out of his number nines and the way it led to such tension with Aguero, but can't really run that much anymore. I mean, talking to people this week, the complaint the events was, and I, I, I quote, it was sometimes like you were playing with 10 men until he'd score. But that gradually had a bit of an inhibiting effect on the team. And for Juventus not to win Serie A is an, is an indictment. And it's why 
yes, I think if this happens, which it looks like it will, Ronaldo will score a bucket load of goals and he will look like a success from that perspective. But in terms of being actual the difference in what City need, which is what we're coming down to now and what, what's relevant here, I'm a little bit more sceptical. Yeah, because it does pose questions about City in, in a number of areas, doesn't it, Art? You know, do they need the sort of stardust that he would sprinkle? You know, it's a hugely effective team. It's a beautiful team to watch at times. But in terms of global personalities, they don't have that, do they? They don't have that marquee effect. No, and that's one thing where you look at the City squad and you think, okay, Harry Kane wouldn't have solved that either because he isn't the personality that Cristiano Ronaldo is. But he would have been, I guess, a more efficient signing in terms of what their team needs and how, I guess, at a much younger age, he can fit into Pep Guardiola's style and be moulded a bit more easily than Cristiano Ronaldo. But as you say, with Ronaldo, you do get that marquee status of a signing. I don't think City have had, well, I guess... The last one would be Sergio Aguero, really. And now he's gone this summer. You ha- you don't have to replace that, but there is definitely a hole in that. There is a void there that he left when deciding not to extend his contract this summer. And I think in terms of Cristiano Ronaldo, you can't get big- you can't get bigger than that. But then you also get the criticisms of just getting getting Cristiano Ronaldo for the popularity for everything off the football pitch. You consider he's 36 years old now, turns 37 during the season in February. And even though, as Miguel says, he will probably score a load of goals, it just doesn't seem quite right, (laughs) I don't think. And especially when you consider how frequently Manchester United fans have come to his aid in arguments over the years. And now they've just seen seen this happen before their eyes. I'm, I'm not sure how well the world of football will take it. Mm. Do you think you know, this is, in essence, isn't it, Megs, modern football in microcosm? And you only have to look at the, the Champions League draw on, on Thursday evening to see City against PSG, Ronaldo against Messi... Abu Dhabi against Qatar. There are political dimensions as well as the football dimensions. Within the context of that group, it's quite a difficult group. Red Bull Leipzig, another corporate modeler there, capable of probably creating some sort of noise. But in overall terms, it's just another example, isn't it, of the way modern football is developing? Oh, yeah, completely. And it's funny, someone said to me during the week that you do have to consider in this, and it's interesting that with PSG going for Messi, Abu Dhabi's club then immediately goes for the other side of that. And of course, it could have, we, we, we could have had the, the reverse of that last year. And, and I suppose that's what I mean in terms of kind of also, even five years ago, 10 years ago, Ronaldo might have had, might have had more of a choice. That, this concerns me, I have to say. Again, we shouldn't be too sentimental about players, but I don't think it's ever been as bad as this. And you're right, I think this is it offers a vision of the Super League in that it feels like, like let's let's not be too, let's not dismiss this. It does, you can see from the, the reaction of United fans, it does affect his emotional connection with the club, which is seen to be strong. And again, I know that's happened in the past, you know, you only have to look at Dennis Law, Peter Schmeichel, Andy Cole, but the contexts were different, the dynamics were different. And now it just feels as if, basically, far from players developing these emotional connections and going to these clubs in more understandable ways, it is basically like star players just engaging in what are more, what can more describe as transactions than ever before. It's just content without emotional connections, just interchangeably going around the big clubs and eventually, you know, the Champions League lands on one of them. That's what what worries me about this kind of, this super club era and what, what could have been the super league as well. It's the interchangeability of the names, essentially, and it's not just so. And it's it's just, just football as content rather than what it's supposed to be, which is a, a community thing with real living emotions. Where you know <laughs> there is something distinctive about the teams you have and the players you sign. 
So let's talk about football as football art. Does this signing, if it goes ahead, and as Mig says, it's, it's probable that it will go ahead, will Cristiano Ronaldo win or ensure that Manchester City defend their Premier League title? And will it push them towards the Champions League title, which will define, one way or the other, Pep Guardiola's time at City? I don't necessarily think it will, even though he's a great player, arguably the greatest of all time, although not in my opinion. <laughs> I You're don't... a messy man. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so am I. <laughs> um, I don't think him arriving there just guarantees them trophies. Because when you look at how, I guess, Chelsea have built this season or this summer, sorry, or make, even say this year under Thomas Tuchel, they have a much clearer plan, which is more long term, I think. And that's what drives me towards, I guess, favouring them. Obviously, we've seen how short-term success can work, but when you look at how Europe as well has recruited, Europe is a lot stronger than it was last season, and it won't just be a case of Manchester City ending up in the Champions League final again and all they have to do is win. They're going to have to actually get through the group stage, which is going to be tough, tougher now than it was last season when they routinely drew Shakhtar Donetsk in the <laughs> Champions League group stages and they're going to have to work for it. And I think, although Ronaldo will bring obvious qualities and he can bring those intangibles that come with experience, I don't think he will necess- necessarily be the missing ingredient, if that makes sense. I think there's probably more to it than just one player to guarantee success. And in terms of Guardiola, Guardiola's legacy and that that Champions League you mentioned, I think in the wider football world, he probably has to win that Champions League to cement his legacy. For me, I'm not too big on that, just because I think when, when you're looking at managers, players' legacies over time, for me, I'm not, I don't really care about the trophies, how many. He's already won the Champions League and I think the overall effect he's had on football probably outweighs whether or not he brings in another Champions League. I think if we're like going down the Champions League argument, then, I mean, no one can really talk about Arsene Wenger and <laughs> I wouldn't want that to happen. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I think I'm not too big on the Champions League cementing his legacy thing, but I do understand it as well. Yeah. I suppose, Migs, and again, this is another example of modern football in action. We learned about Pep Guardiola's plans when he revealed to a Brazilian investment company's conference where he shared top billing with Hillary Clinton that he's going to stay at Manchester City until 2023, then then manage a national team, which... (laughs) You know, it's a little bit more than the you know, the usual press release we get to to confirm these matters. When we when we look at Pep Guardiola, and I know it's a half formed story at the moment. How would you define his in, his impact in English football, and who do you think would be capable of taking over from him when time comes in twenty twenty three? Well, I suppose his main influence in English football is that there are actually a number of managers and coaches that now play his brand of football. I think that's, I mean, he can, I think he's a, he can be a spikier character than people realise, right? Well, actually, maybe people do realise a lot these days. And I think there's a fair questions over his legacy in the Champions League. But there's no doubt, basically, he's been one of the most influential coaches in football history. Anyone you talk to basically sees his 2008 appointment at Barcelona as a before and after in world football. It was spread right down to youth coaching in terms of... of Kids playing out from the back and the way people and and how and, and that's been such a huge change in English football. I mean, you can see that right through the divisions now. So from that perspective, there are coaches like I suppose, I mean, Brendan Rodgers is the one that leaps to mind. A lot of people think about there's almost a succession plan there. And Mauricio Pochettino maybe before he'd gone to Paris Saint Germain. I think his legacy will. I mean, he's produced or he's overseen, possibly. Are one of the greatest leagues I've in this country, given City's centurion season and their quadruple or treble. Sorry, I can't believe I said quadruple. I can't believe I momentarily included the. Uh, I, fe- I fell for the branding inc- and included the community here. <laughs> it's a treble. We're not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. It's a treble, not a quadruple. Um, 
of course, all that has to be put into the context of their immense resources. And I, I did a piece, actually, at the start of last season, before he'd won his third title in five years, basically wondering whether two and two and four is good enough because it's quite a weird thing. And it's hard to get away from this, but if he doesn't win that Champions League, especially if he goes now 11 seasons without one, it, like, it will always be a caveat to no matter how many domestic trophies he wins. Yeah. Well, City most immediately are at home to Arsenal in the Saturday lunchtime kickoff on uh, on BT Sport. No Kevin De Bruyne with a recurrence of ankle pain, which you know might be time to get worried on that. Mikel Arteta, uh, obviously you deal with him a lot. You know Arsenal's problems have been well documented. The internal tensions have also been pretty well documented. In the round, when you see how Arteta has done in charge at Arsenal. Do you think he would be, or would have been, better advised to extend his apprenticeship at City under Pep before going out into the snake pit of Premier League management? I'm not too sure. I think when you look at his time at Manchester City, he's three and a half years as an assistant manager, then goes into his first head coaching role. Maybe the next step on the apprenticeship would have been a management role before coming into Arsenal. I think maybe if he was an assistant for another six months, another 18 months. I don't think it would have made that much of a difference considering how the length of time he had already been at Manchester City under Pep Guardiola. I don't think him, I guess, extending that part of his apprenticeship would have made much of a difference once he finally then made the jump into first team management on his own. Although I do, do feel that there have been points in this 18 months where you can see his inexperience almost sometimes in a kind of Guardiola-like way, overthinking games where he doesn't need to, making quite strange decisions at times. I remember actually when, when Arsenal went to Manchester City last season, he played Willian as a false nine and that's something that a lot of people still can't wrap their heads around. And there's, yeah, selection problems that have flared up now and again. Of course, he does get his tactics right on occasions. And that led to him winning the FA Cup in the 2019-20 season. But yeah, there's definitely, it's definitely been a learning experience rather than uh, what Arsenal would have got if they, say, went for a more experienced manager like, say, Carlo Ancelotti, who was available at the time, who knows himself as a manager. It, it would have been a very different type of football Arsenal would have been playing. We know that Ancelotti went straight to that 4-4-2 of Everton, and I'm not sure that would have served as well with Arsenal fans as as the football that Mikel Arteta tried to play at first. Obviously, he became a bit more pragmatic about six months into his time in charge. But I do think that even though there have been moments where he has shown his inexperience, he he does have, I guess, the trust and faith of the hierarchy at Arsenal. That was probably best shown or represented last year around November and December where Arsenal didn't win from, I think it was the 1st of November at Old Trafford until Boxing Day against Chelsea. And those were very <laughs> dire times, but Arsenal weren't wavering in their stance on him. And I think if if they didn't let him go then, then he's definitely going to have some some time to carry on what he he calls a project. I won't I won't want to start that whole discussion again. But yeah, I think the point of I guess more time in his apprenticeship probably. Maybe there is some weight to it, but I don't think it would have made that much difference. Hmm. Yeah, from your perspective, Migs, you know, Arsenal have obviously and actually literally bought into Arteta, haven't they? You know, they've spent a lot of money in this transfer window. The question will be answered in the months to come is whether that money has been well spent. Just want to look at one particular area, the goalkeeping area. They you know, bought in Ramsdale, they got Burnt Leno, What's the time frame for rational judgment when you make choices like that? And, you know, who would be your first choice? 
Uh, well, from my understanding, Arteta was very much behind the Ramsdale signing and really pushed on it. So it looks like he will, maybe not immediately, but gradually he will become the first choice. I have to say I'd probably stick with Leno at the moment. But with Arsenal at the moment, it feels like splitting hairs. I, mean, I, I, I suppose the really the, the goalkeeping situation is maybe just a wider reflection in terms of... It is difficult to escape this debate that Arsenal have spent so much money to potentially not make the team that much better. And this isn't to malign the players they've signed. It's more like... I remember being told a year ago that Arsenal were going to basically go down the Dortmund model of, uh, you know, trying to find the best young talent, developing them. But the money they're paying isn't the money you pay for good young talent the way, say, Leicester did with Fafana and all these players they've got. It's the money you play for kind of mid-20s, 7 out of 10 players who haven't just haven't quite made it yet. And it feels like just kind of an accumulation rather than this kind of really efficient squad building. That would, that would be my concern rather than actually, you know, over concern with the actual players themselves. It's 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 a lot of money in that regard, and it's an important money because Arsenal don't have the financial power of the teams they think they should be up with at the moment, so it will potentially inhibit that. But again, as ever with these situations, all of this is dependent on what the coach can actually do with them and whether he can amplify the abilities of those players. I do think that's possible with Arteta. I'd I'd agree with a lot about what Art said there. I think. The main issue, main issue with disappointment, really, is that it, it, it's 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 one of experience. I think there's so much promise in, and from everything you hear, there's still so much promise in how Arteta coaches in his vision of football. But the problem with going to a job like this is you can't make mistakes in the job. If he went lower down the table, I, I think this is the real key about kind of staying with Guardiola. If he goes lower down the table to a job with less pressure that haven't had the kind of fall that Arsenal have recently, you you can find out what works. You, you you can have a bad game where something you do goes disastrously and reassess and, and I suppose hone your methods. And it, it doesn't feel like, I mean, okay, last season it was one of limitless patience, basically, which which you should be appreciative for, I suppose. But it's still it's still a lot of external pressure with Arsenal. It, it, it feels like there's just maybe that possibility everything has been that little bit rushed. What concerned me last week was this, the siege mentality Arteta tried to bring on. Like that, that felt real kind of coaching 101 as if he kind of picked that one out of the manual. When like, and it, it kind of everyone, you know, saw through. I mean, he went on about how they are speaking bad. Well, I mean, they didn't lose 2-0 to Brentford. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, true. What about, you know, with a glance over North London, uh, Spurs, I suppose in many ways, if you're going to look at a symbol of decline, you saw it on Thursday night where... They're playing in the Europa Conference League against the fifth best team in Portugal, let's put it like that. Harry Kane scored twice, but it's it's very, very difficult to escape the conclusion that he's been the biggest loser in this entire transfer window process. Do you agree with that? I think so. When I know, obviously, you said he scored last night and I guess came to Tottenham's rescue as he has done so often since breaking into the first team all those years ago under Tim Sherwood. I think when you look at how the summer played out, so when I was looking at it, obviously I'm not as clued into Tottenham as most would be, but I was just trying to figure out how do you come back from from that situation? How as club captain who didn't turn up to training. I know there's been different stories about why he didn't turn up to training, but how do you come back as captain into that environment and I guess demand trust from teammates? Yes, but also fans. Fans are a bit less likely to just forget, I think. And I think we saw that at Wolves on the weekend where when the Tottenham, I guess, team bus arrived and he came off, he was get, he was getting booed. And I think I'm, I didn't see most of the game yesterday, so I didn't see the reception. But going forward, I'm not sure. I just how yeah, how do you come back from that position where? Yeah, I you're... I, I think I think Art to be to be fair to the Spurs fans, you know they 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 gave him you know a heck of a reception in the end last night or okay. you know, throughout last night. But I think you make a, a broader point is that 
there is still no sense of commitment to the club, it seems to me. You know, if you look at his statement, he's talking about, you know, nothing will happen this summer. So in other words, he's basically, we're going to get to January, we'll come and get me play again, won't it? Um, <laughs> that is where I think, you know, that, that well, you know, Mix, from your point of view, do you think something like that undermines any sort of team ethos or is it just something that the pros will look at him and think, well, okay, I'll probably do the same sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think I think the players get over it quick enough. And especially, I mean, we already know the stories about, I mean, they're, if not necessarily close friends with Kane, they're his, his acquaintances, his teammates, they have a good relationship with him. And we, we've already heard stories about him basically telling them on golf courses that the city move isn't isn't going to happen. So it's not like, they, like they, they'll understand his position. If maybe, I'd say, most of them wouldn't have missed missed training in the way he did at the very start. So I, and I, I, I don't think that'll be an issue. And, and also with these sort of things, we've seen in the past, as, as soon as players start performing, it's, it's pretty quickly forgotten. Yeah, I, I, again, we've got the example, I suppose, almost a touchstone one for these, where, you know, on one level we had, or in one moment we had Liverpool fans burning Steven Gerrard's jersey outside, outside Melwood and Anfield. And then by the end of that season, he was, score, he, he was scoring a screamer to, win, to eventually win the FA Cup final. So, um, no, I, well, that, that wouldn't concern me too much, I don't think. And there's a bit of a clean slate for Spurs there. Mm. You know, looking at the weekend, obviously, you know, the eyes drawn to the the Chelsea-Liverpool game. Ah, oh, Chelsea, are they now a better balanced team with Lukaku than the one which won the Champions League only a couple of months ago? I do think so, because with Lukaku, you have a platform up front. Obviously, everyone was stating that goals was what they needed and Lukaku brings that but what he also brings is an ability to hold up the ball and bring others into play that say Havertz didn't when he was playing up front obviously Havertz is a very special talent that obviously won them the Champions League with his goal against Manchester City but the physical presence and intelligence that Lukaku has in terms of what pockets to pick up who how to, I guess, handle a centre-back. It was almost like striker 101 against Pablo Mari last weekend. And I think the overall benefits he brings with his game, not outweigh, but there's so much more to his game than goals that elevates Chelsea to another level. And I think when going into, I guess, the Premier League this season and the Champions League, that's what's going to set Chelsea apart. I know they've been very wedded to that 3-4-3 under Thomas Tuchel. And I think him pulling out and allowing space for others to run ahead of him as well allows for not just him to shine, but others. And that's why I think there is a much better balance. And I guess what I'm wondering is whether when he doesn't play, how will they play? Will they just revert to how they played with, I guess, Timo Werner last season where they're kind of looking to get in behind a lot more? Or will they ask Timo Werner or Kai Havertz to do a similar job? I'm not sure, but that's just something I'm thinking about. And I do think that, yeah, it's a lot more to do with Lukaku's overall game, why Chelsea would be much better balanced this season than last. And also, we've had... During the um, Champions League draw, Jorginho was named as UEFA's Player of the Year. Do you agree with that um, award, Mix? Uh, I'd have gone with Kante purely because he was the... Jorginho, to be fair to him, was consistent right throughout the season. But what, Kante was man of the match in both semi-finals and the final. I think he was the difference maker. And while, while I don't think Jorginho was a bad choice this year, I, I'd have gone for Kante, yeah. But I, I just in general, Chelsea, actually, I... I I picked them to win the title before the season, and I think they're just. I'm a huge fan of Tuchel. And it, 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 it's, it's why. The, I, I, I suppose I know we're going to get onto it, but I think it's why this, this Saturday's game is quite very interesting in terms of the sense of. This is basically two different ways to build a title winning team. Liverpool and Klopp have basically gone through the very old fashioned way, which is, you know, piece by piece getting the right players in, culminating in Van Dyke and Allison. Whereas with Chelsea, it's supposed to be much more modern method where there was this kind of super stacked squad built 
and a lead manager was brought in and he almost has to impose an ideology on top of them. But, I mean, Tuchel's one of the best in the world for that right now. Yeah. With Liverpool art, you know, it's, it's going to be the biggest test of, of a defence, which, you know, for understandable reasons, is probably just beginning to find itself with, um, you know, Van Dijk coming back in, Matip, you know, obviously he's had his injury problems over the over the years. When we look at Liverpool, where do you see them in the, in the top four? Good, good, good question. <laughs> um, I do it occasionally. Yeah, before the season started, I was thinking either third or fourth. Given how they've started the season, I think they could push up to second. I don't see them winning the whole thing. I think that is between. Chelsea and City but they have impressed me more than I expected to be impressed <laughs> so far this season I know um, obviously Van Dijk's coming back in Matip coming back in Gomez as well we can't forget about him they have I guess actual centre-backs now <laughs> mm. so that's going to make a difference I think obviously Van Dijk's probably the biggest one who makes a difference on both sides of the ball in terms of yes he can defend but he's also very good on the ball and that elevates them to a, a new level. So, yeah, I think they can push for second and go quite far in the Champions League. I think, obviously, they've got a tough group with uh, AC Milan and Porto. But um, I, I do think they can have a very strong, strong season, much stronger than they had last year. Yeah, let's look at that, that Champions League group, if we could, please, Megs. With Liverpool... You know, familiar threats. You know, Atletico beat them or eliminated them season before last. Porto finished second in in Portugal last season and did well. I think they they you know they eliminated uh, Juventus, didn't they? Milan back in the Champions League for the first time since 2014. How do you see that group evolving? Yeah, I think on paper it looks very awkward. But this is almost my concern with the, you know, the return to a familiar team with the modern Champions League and that these names look awkward. But that's a lot of what they are now, names. I mean, we've already mentioned in terms of Ronaldo, but Milan isn't the Milan that we associate with the great history of the game. They're, they're trying to rebuild that in quite an interesting way. I think what will be the route or will be the necessary route for a lot of clubs against these kind of super stacked super clubs whereas where they, well, they spend so much money and are so indulgent clubs like Milan and what what I suppose what should have been done at clubs like Arsenal is they have to really be super lean so then, and then they can play really efficient intense pressing football so that's a possibility in saying that I think maybe it's a little bit early for Milan in that regard to trouble Liverpool United end up kind of dispensing relatively comfortably in the end in the Europa League last year I actually think Porto could end up being the most awkward in the group I was really disappointed with that Atletico Madrid side in the Champions League against Chelsea last year. I think the fact they've won the title speaks to a little bit of the issues in Spanish football now, which is why the Mape thing is is so interesting. And actually, just as a, as a tangent, my, my, my big hope for Spain is that finally we see it opens up for a, a Sevilla or a Villarreal to win it, which I think would be great. But they're quite an odd team at the moment, Atletico. But again, they've, they've, they've still got Simeone's tactical acumen. They've still got a ferocity to them when required. And they've got Suarez, which is, of course, uh, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's amazing the modern game in that sense now, whereas two, three years ago, particularly when Suarez played for Barcelona, that this would have been the big focus. Whereas now it, the game is, is so gone, gone on now that it, like it, it, that didn't really even come up when the two teams were put together yesterday. Yeah. What about Chelsea? Uh, Juventus, you know, obviously going through their own growing pains at the moment. Malmo and Zenit. That seems on paper to be relatively simple, doesn't it? Yeah, I think out of the English teams, them and Manchester United probably got the, I guess, more favourable <laughs> group draws. Obviously, Juventus is the big game for Chelsea. And I think that's where we'll see maybe less rotation from Thomas Tuchel. Obviously, his squad is still very, very big, even with the sales they've made, say, Zappacosta most recently and Tammy Abraham. But aside from the Juventus game, I think they should be getting through that group as winners and cementing a decent place or a decent draw for, for the round of 16 in, I guess, February, March, 
wh- whichever mo- month it is in. But yeah, I, I think they'll start well as, I guess, trying to uh, regain their, their trophy. And then once we get into the knockout stages, that's when we're going to see... not We're not going to see them crumble, but see them have more challenging games. But I don't think it'll be... I guess the repeat of 2012 when when they won the Champions League and then dropped out into the Europa League straight after. But I think they'll have a much better shout of going further this year. Mm. You know, we had a tangential reference there to you know Mbappe, Real Madrid. You know, Madrid are in Group D along with Inter, then Shakhtar and, and Sheriff, who are the first Moldovan team to reach the group stage. You know, they'll be the the make weights one assumes with Real Madrid. I know you're not an accountant, Migs, but explain to me, please, how a club like that can suddenly pay or find down the back of the sofa 180 million euros, which is about 155 million pounds, to buy Kylian Mbappe. Well, I mean, first of all, I think it puts the necessary spin on a lot of Perez's pleading that if they... if him and his fellow big clubs didn't get a Super League, they'd be finished. So already, <laughs> already we can see that. And Madrid, like a lot of Spanish football, have financial issues. In saying that, I think this is... I, I think because Mbappe is such a good player and because he is possibly, if not already, the best player in the world, it's actually one of those where the, the usual, you know... Perezonomics, if you like, might work. Because, I mean, the model at Madrid, since he came in as president in 2000, with Figo, the first one, was always, if you sign these megastars, they pay for themselves because of all the commercial appeal around them and the, and the, the glamour and all the rest of it. And I think that, that, that gradually had diminishing returns the more superstars they signed. And when they became kind of a, a star low of the vehicle, as Barcelona under Guardiola became like a, a, a proper team. But in this case, I actually think it's true because of the distinctive context at a time where Spain is a little bit lean at the moment in terms of stars. Madrid, I mean, they're not as box office as they have been for pretty much... In fact, this, this is probably the, uh, the least glamorous Madrid team in the, in the last, what, since the 70s probably. But the signing of Mbappe immediately changes that. And, and not, I mean, he'd, even, he'd be a, a distinctive jewel even the way Ronaldo couldn't be because Ronaldo obviously had always had Messi across from him and three or four of the best players in the world at the time. Mape would be really, like, he'd be the absolute standout. He'd be the, the, the star attraction for Spain. And, 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 and even put in more basic terms, I suppose, like, they're just they're refurbishing that stadium quite expensively, but at the moment don't have stars to fill it. Bar Hazard kind of maybe plodding around these days. <laughs> um, but, but Mbappe is the star. I mean... Because that, that, that's been the thing about Spanish football for so long. Like, like when you hear people go to Barcelona or Madrid, even people that didn't have, that didn't have much interest in football, like basically going to the Bernabeu or the Camp Nou would be almost a tourist attraction to go and see one of these stars. And I, I, that's the sort of thing that Mbappe can restore. And I mean, the, the way these deals usually happen is that ultimately there are very few Spanish banks that are going to say no to Florentino Perez when it comes to opening up a credit line for these players. Well, there is actually even more of an argument for it to happen this time because of because Mbappe would be unique for the club. From that perspective, as absurd as it is from one angle, there is actually some logic on the other, at least if you go by the, the, the context of what Madrid are as a club. And I have, to, I have to say also, I mean, this maybe goes against some of the thinking right now. Where I, I actually think it is worth them paying for Mbappe now rather than waiting for a free next summer. Not, not just because of the danger that other clubs come in or he actually ends up like playing, like, like, likes playing with Neymar and Messi. It's just you're, you're paying for an extra year of maybe nine to ten years of potentially one of the greatest players ever. Mm. In that context, this is going to sound a bit absurd, Art, but have Manchester United spent enough money? Okay, they've spent about £130 million, give or take a, a pound or two. You know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's talking about needing at last another midfield player. Obvious expressions of interest in in Declan Rice, who probably would be perfect for them. You know, 
have almost Manchester United woken up too late that the actual game is changing around them? I think there's a possibility of that. When you look at, I guess, what Miguel just spoke about there in terms of Barcelona and Real Madrid's different trajectories, especially towards the late noughties, where Real Madrid are signing superstars like Kaká, Benzema and Ronaldo and trying to just mesh them all together. Barcelona were building an actual team. And you've seen this summer, obviously, Manchester United have been after Jadon Sancho for what seems like an eternity. They finally get him. But was he who they actually needed? Maybe in some terms, yes, because they've been quite light on the right wing. But their team has been crying out for a midfielder to almost let Pogba and Fernandes play and be more effective as a unit rather than being star players who can change a game in an instant. But over the course of a year, you're still asking those questions about consistency. And now we're, what, four days away from the transfer deadline. And it's it's that time where teams get desperate. So you can, I guess, understand now they've, they've woken up, they've slept past the alarm clock and they're thinking... <laughs> Okay, I need to have breakfast. What is breakfast? Declan Rice at holding midfield. <laughs> and there speaks a man. There speaks a man, by the way, and I'm giving away a state secret here. Who is sitting there in his dressing gown? So uh, <laughs> who, who has not had breakfast yet? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, with United, obviously, it looks like they're going to unveil Varane against Wolves on Sunday. That signing aside. You know, my interest at United it actually has been sort of directing towards Mason Greenwood. Why wasn't he in the England squad? What do you think, Mix? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very curious one. And obviously, Selke um, okay, didn't go into too much detail yesterday. I, I do wonder, is there a little, still a little bit of a hangover from what happened last year? Selke's big into the discipline of these teams. And maybe it's just a little bit of a, a lesson for him, but yeah, it, it's a, it's an odd one. Given we're talking about, I think one of the one of the finest talents in the Premier League, and someone who I think this season could actually end up one of his one of its best strikers. And I, I I think I mean I mean to touch on earlier debates, he's a very good reason why United shouldn't sign Cristiano Ronaldo. Why they should never have considered it because you don't want Greenwood's progress being inhibited. I, I think he'll stake a claim that quickly. Yeah. Patrick Bamford did get selected by Gareth Southgate. You know, Leeds playing uh, Burnley on Sunday. Bamford, a uh, really interesting character. Is he an absolutely top, 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 top striker? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think it's really funny when you watch him. He has very good technique. He's a very good goal scorer in the Premier League now with Leeds. Some of that is down to the design of Marcelo Bielsa. And of course, uh, some of that is down to his talent as well. I remember speaking to... So when I was watching... I can't remember which game it was. But Leeds were playing and my friend said Bamford reminds him of Dimitar Berbatov. Not because of the goal scoring, but more because of how, I guess, he carries himself. And the more I watch him, the more I can see it. (laughs) I'm not saying he's in the same league as Berbatov, but... You can see the kind of, it's not an arrogance, but just this confidence that he goes around with, that he he knows he belongs now, I think. Whereas further back in his career, if you look to, I guess, the Middlesbrough loan, where he was very good, the Crystal Palace loan, Norwich loan, I believe, and even Burnley as well, where I think he's spoken about it before, where I guess he, if we put it lightly, he didn't feel particularly welcome in Burnley I think now he's much more self-assured and that's come across in his football if we think back to the the game against Aston Villa last season where he scored a hat-trick every goal was taken with confidence and I think people was just surprised that maybe it's taken this long for him to get a call up especially given that the Euro squad was 26 players instead of 23 but um, I do think he's coming into that stage where he just knows himself a lot better than he did. And that's why we're seeing him perform so consistently at a top level. 
And I think maybe maybe he is a top striker and I'm just being a bit too, I guess, hesitant to, to admit it. But he's definitely in a place where his manager knows him and he knows himself very well. And that's why I think we're seeing what we're seeing from him at the minute. Mm. The other notable returnee to the England squad, Jesse Lingard, do you expect him to turn up at West Ham, Migs? And just, well, if you could, please, on the job that David Moyes is doing there, they've got Palace at home at the weekend, which means they're likely to be top of the Premier League going into the international break. Is that job that Moyes is doing being undervalued, do you think? Yeah, probably. Yeah, not least by likes of myself. <laughs> so I went, I, I went into this season, I was thinking, yeah, we'll have basically a regression to the mean, whatever you want to call it. Last season was a fluke. There's no way Moyes and West Ham can do this again. <laughs> Look at the way they've started this year. So yeah, I think he he does deserve a lot. I mean, this isn't an original point. I think it was Richard Jolly that made it originally, but uh, they they do look like the best of his um, of his Everton teams, and something we didn't see from Moyes really, I suppose, in and not just since he left Everton, because the last, his last few years at Everton there was a there was a I suppose a little bit of a decline from from twenty ten, but we what we're seeing now is one of one of his really good teams uh, from oh five or or oh nine where they're very solid, and they know exactly when to attack at the right moments. And they can be quite exhilarating when they suddenly break forward, and they're they're they're, they're a very obdurate team. And I think we're we're seeing real real shades of that in in West Ham now. If they are to propel themselves, especially now that they they will have European football, and that is going to ask bigger questions of the squad. But as a thin enough squad, you would think getting Lingard back in is essential. From what I'd heard, there had been hope that United might use him as a as a make weight in Declan Rice, and he sort of moved for Declan Rice. Although it seems just touching on what Art was saying there a few minutes ago, it does seem like United are kind of, for all sorts of reasons, not including budget, they're it's a bit like Sancho, and they're resigned to waiting a year for for getting for getting Rice. But uh, I think that's one that, that that could be possible toward uh, before the end of the window. But I I, I do think that that'd be maybe my one note of caution on all this that West Ham are going to need a bigger squad than last year and that could sap some resources but because if, if they've just got the Premier League as we've seen they're, they're, they're a very finely honed outfit right now mm. yeah, Finally it's a, it's a thought prompted by the Dean Smith derby you know, Villa against Brentford on Saturday Villa made the, the gesture uh, of giving their share of, of receipts to Barrow in the League Cup now that's a a very refreshing act of thoughtfulness, you know, perhaps charity, in what is, as we've been discussing, a really elitist era. I suppose, though, it does heighten the, the old question. What is the point of the League Cup? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if going to an Arsenal report is the best way to go about this. Yeah, was it not nine, <laughs> nine debutants of West Brom against them? Yeah, so West Brom... 11 changes, 9 debuts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Arteta went strong because he had to go strong. But traditionally, Arsenal haven't... Maybe taken seriously is the wrong way to go about it, but they haven't traditionally put their strongest teams out in, in the League Cup. And I think that that competition has mostly been, I guess, the point of it, for, for big teams is to give your younger players just a taste for first-team football before maybe giving them a loan or bring them into the first team if they're good enough. For the teams in between, I guess, elite-performing teams and, I guess, the more League 2, League 1 teams, I guess it could 
just be seen as quite of an annoyance, especially in the early stages of the season where maybe you haven't got the squad that you want to have and you're looking to perform in the league. I think we saw that with West Brom. The manager in the post-match admitted that they are prioritising the championship. And I don't think that's maybe... It is a bit unhealthy for that competition where you've got teams putting different weights on how much they they appreciate it but then again it, I guess it just shows how muddled <laughs> the thinking is in English football at the minute where you've got so many different teams wanting to achieve so many different things <laughs> and I think maybe I, I still think it's worth having the League Cup but it's just about finding that balance of I guess what is actually needed from it. And I'm still probably looking for that, what that balance is. But yeah, I I can understand why so many people are still frustrated by it. Yeah, well, on the one hand, my instinct is to cherish tradition. You know, that's never been more important than today when the tectonic plates of the game are shifting. Current changes will not be for the common good. But on the other hand... You know, let's be honest, it's impossible to see what purpose the League Cup serves. When you've got League Two teams playing the reserves, there's no point. At best, it needs to be repackaged, probably without the Premier League teams, could then be extended to include conference teams. Far from perfect, but worth a try? I'm not so sure. I'd probably scrap it. But in the meantime, thanks to Art and Miguel for their insight and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.